Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Okay, who wants to read? Starting from where, could you say the sentence again? Thank you. Page 718, Standard English Translation. Second full paragraph begins, except for its name. Except for its name, that I will now change to a more decent one, lamella, of which the word omelet is, in fact, but a metastasis. This image and this myth seem to me apt for both illustrating and situating what I call libido. The image shows libido to be what it is, namely an organ, to which its habits make it far more akin than to a force field. Let us say that it is qua surface that it organizes this force field. This conception can be tested by realizing that Freud considered the drive to be structured like a montage and by relating it to that. Ah, finally, the drive. Um, Thank you very much. So I think this is one of the weirdest moves. Libido is an organ. It is the organ of the drive. And yet it marks a body without them a body without organs. Um, The force field stuff is a kind of return to and try to move beyond uh, Freudian understandings of libido. Um, For us though, we know why and how the drive is structured like a montage of openings, emergences, movements and the like. It's attached to this organ of libido. Um, We've got that from last time. This is a great little review. Who wants to read, and you can just continue, please, referring to electromagnetic theory. Here we go. Referring to electromagnetic theory, and in particular to a theorem known as Stokes theorem, would allow me to situate the reason for the constancy of the drive's pressure, which Freud emphasizes so greatly, and the fact that the surface is based on a closed rim, which is the erogenous zone. Okay. All right. We're getting that montage. So the drive's pressure is constant. It's not a biological pressure, not because it's not rooted in the body. It's not biological because it does not work in a rhythmic quality, the way that fall leads to winter, leads to spring, leads to summer. That's not the pressure or the thrust of the drive. That's one element. And now we've got this closed rim of the erogenous zone. That's the second of four elements that go into this montage of the drive that we talked about last time. So far, we're cool. All review. With the exception, with the exception of electromagnetic theory, um, please continue. With it is also clear. It is also clear that what Freud calls the shub or flow of the drive is not its discharge, but should rather be described as the turning inside out and outside in of an organ whose function should be situated in relation to the preceding subjective coordinates. Okay. You know where I'm going to go with this. You've heard it from me before, but this is the drive theory that we're developing here. And we are developing it not by reading a secondary source on the drive. 
We are developing this by reading Lacan on the drive. There is a flow, which is not a discharge. You see, previous theory, theorizations of the drive would suggest that there would be some sort of a bodily energetic buildup. And then that would hearken to the mind psyche and the psyche would be like, okay, shit, we got to do something with that. Let's find something in the world that will allow for the discharge of that energy. Lacan's like, yeah, we're not messing with that. Electromagnetic theory, yes, but not this discharge of energy business. What Lacan is talking about is a drive that is active. The drive is an activity. Yes, it has active, reflexive, and passive tenses, but the drive is fundamentally something we do. It is an adventure. The drive is something that is more, not, not like an avatar, that's not right. The drive has a series of adventures and activities that it undertakes, but every single adventure that marks the drive has the same in-out structure. You see, erogenous zones marked by rim-like structures of so many mouths on the human body, as Lacan once put it, that's back from seminar seven, I believe, are openings. Openings that can be open, openings that can be closed. The fence of the teeth, as Homer put it. When you have openings that can be opened and openings that can be closed, you allow yourself to have interiors and exteriors, insides and outsides. And the drive is something that emerges from an opening like a bubble from a mouth, comes out, encompasses a void, not unlike a bubble from the mouth, and then comes back in to its original source. You know you're dealing with the drive when you've got an in-out operativity happening. And that's what we're seeing here. If you need the passage in Lacan, this is one of several where he talks about the turning inside out and outside in of an organ. And not just anyone, but one that should be articulate with all the subjective coordinates. This organ must be called unreal in the sense in which the unreal is not the imaginary and precedes the subjective realm it conditions being in direct contact with the real. And here's one way that we can answer that earlier question about the child's cry. It's not real, it's unreal. That is why my myth, like any myth, strives to provide a symbolic articulation rather than an image. And then here is the great bottom line from our session last time. My lamella represents here the part of a living being that is lost when that being is produced through the straits of sex. If lamella as libido is what is lost when the organism becomes a subject, a living subject through the straits of sex, the drive is what allows us to march that process back and reclaim and restore aspects, touches, tinges of the libido. This part is certainly indicated in the media. 
that microscopic anatomy materializes in the globules exposed from the two stages of phenomena organized around the chromosome reduction and anatomy. Sex gonad. Okay, got it. He's talking about pigeons, right? We'll see. Represented here by a deadly being, it marks the relationship in which the subject plays a part between sexuality specified in the individual and his death. We also know what that means. Sexuality is always tinged with death for one reason more than others. And that is because sexuality splits the living being into a reproductive function and a lethal function. In order for the species to live on via reproduction, the individual that propagates the species has to die. That's a very like bioanimalistic read on this. What's different about us is that we actually have words for this. You just heard some. We can actually talk about the relationship between sexuality and death. And in fact, what Lacan wants to point out constantly is everything you've heard him say about language, the signifier, and how it introduces us to death and loss and desire and the like. It's all fundamentally dealing with what we experience as sexed beings in relationship to the ultimate cut, which is death. We can use signifiers to talk about death in part, if not in whole, because the signifier is death. It's by way of the signifier for, remember last time, elephant, that I can bring forth something that is not here, that is absent, and might even very well be dead. Everybody with mukes, with mics off, say the name of somebody who is dead. My mic is on, so I'll just say it, Jim. Not Jim, our friend here, and not Jimlet either, but an old buddy of mine named Jim. Dead. When you say that name out loud, it doesn't bring that motherfucker back to life, for better and for worse. It brings their death, their absence, into your life, into your presence. The signifier is akin to death, which is how it connects us to sexuality. Regarding what is represented thereof in the subject, what is striking is the type of anatomical cut breathing new life into the etymological meaning of the word anatomy. Don't just focus on anatomy, focus on the emphasis on breathing new life. This is Lacan on the page. This is not him live. He is very careful about the words he chooses by which the function of certain objects, which should not be called partial, but which stands apart from others is determined. The breast to take an example of the problems to which these objects give rise, is not merely a source of regressive nostalgia. Having been a source of highly priorist nourishment, it is, I am told, related to the mother's body, to its warmth, and even to tender loving care. But that does not sufficiently explain its erotic value, etc., etc. In fact, it is not a question of the breast in the sense of the mother's womb. Notice what's cracking here. Breast. The word he uses for breast in French can also mean womb. Bruce is pointing this out for a reason. Remember what we talked about, the placenta and the breast. The placenta and the breast. 
even though people mix as they like resonances in which the signifier relies heavily on metaphor. It is a question of the breast specified in the function of weaning which prefigures castration. Weaning has been too extensively situated since Klein's investigations in the fantasy of the partition of the mother's body for us not to suspect that the plane of separation which makes the breast the lost object involved in desire passes between the breast and the mother. For if we recall that mammalian organization places the young from the embryo right up to the newborn in a parasitical relation to the mother's body, the breast appears as the same kind of organ to be understood as the ectopia of one individual onto another, as that constituted by the placenta at the beginning of the growth of a certain type of organism which remains specified by this intersection. This is what I was getting at. I don't stray from this text, nor am I making this shit up in any way. This is straight from Lacan. The ectopic relationship between the breast and the placenta, they're connected by the newborn, fetus to newborn's parasitical relationship to the mother figure. Here, it's an embodied, real mother, if you will. They are connected here. And I would like to suggest that what they are connected by is breath, lungs, and by extension, cries, the very thing that are prohibited by the know of the Father. Thou shalt not cry about it. All right. Um, ectopia, by the way, um, if you look it up, there's that tope word, that topos word again, ek from the Greek meaning out. Ectopic relation is one in which an organ or a body part is displaced from one to the other. It's a really important word here. I'm focusing on it just to like, because I want you to understand that this, this ectopia of one individual to another is also modeled in the ectopic relationship between the placenta and the breast, the displacement of one organ or body part to another. And now, in conclusion, libido. Is this lamella that the organism's being takes to its true limit, which goes further than the body's limit? Profound statement right there. Scrolling down, this lamella is an organ since it is the instrument of an organism. Okay, that's how Lacan says libido is an organ because it is an instrument of the living subject of the organism. Don't get caught up looking around in your swimsuit zone from your, for your lamella. Speaking subjects, I'm at the bottom of 719, have the privilege of revealing the deadly meaning of this organ and thereby its relation to sexuality, signification, sex, and death. Anytime that Holy Trinity pops up in the mid 60s for Lacan, prick your ears because here we go. Speaking subjects have the privilege of revealing the deadly meaning of this organ and thereby its relation to sexuality. This is because the signifier as such, whose first purpose is to bar the subject, has brought him the meaning of death. The letter kills, baby, but we learn this first from the letter itself. 
This is why every drive is virtually a death drive. Again, this is material we covered last time. Here it is again in Lacan. You can't make this stuff up. Final couple of sentences, and then we're going to take a second. It's important to grasp how the organism, bio-animalistic being, is taken up in the dialectic of the subject, the organ of what is incorporeal in the sexed being, incorporeal because unreal, is the aspect of the organism that the subject manages to invest when his separation occurs. It is through this organ that he can really make his death the object of the other's desire. And right now, we enter the field of the drive. In this way, the object he naturally loses, excrement, which is the so-called partial object of the anal drive, and the props he finds in the other's desire, the other's gaze, the other's voice. Here we have the partial objects of the scopic drive and of the invocatory drive come to this place. The activity in the subject I call drive. Notice the emphasis here again. Drive is an activity. The activity in the subject I call drive consists in dealing with these objects in such a way as to recover from them, to restore to himself his earliest loss. Here is a terrific definition of drive, and that's ostensibly what we're here to discuss this morning or tonight, depending on where and what you are. Dealing with these objects, partial objects, in such a way as to recover from them and to restore to oneself this earliest loss, this loss of pure life, of that original egg. Not the phantom that took flight. Perhaps it is indeed the egg that we're looking at here. The rest of 720 is lit. I'll let you read it. There's good stuff in here. A really key paragraph on the side of the living being. It's a nice little summative statement. On the side of the living being, here on page 720, as a being that will be taken up in speech, never able in the end to come to be altogether in speech, remaining shy, again, shy of the threshold, which notwithstanding is neither inside nor out, there is no access to the opposite sex as big other except via the so-called partial drives, wherein the subject seeks an object to take the place of the loss of life, libido, he has sustained due to the fact that he is sexed. Sexed, again, having to do with reproduction and death and a sundering of enjoyment. This was one of the passages that got me thinking that from here we might venture forth into seminars 19 and 20. Because here we're not just talking about sexuality, the straits of sexuality, bipolar, but relationship and access to the opposite sex, qua big other, puts us right on the path. This is a great little prefigurative statement. And with that, let's pause. It's 11.52 a.m. in San Francisco. 
I want to take a five-minute break. We just finished position of the unconscious. Five-minute break and then come back. The final hour, I want us to be focused on talking through the drive, mapping it if we need to, and putting these pieces together so that by the end of our time together here, we're going to have an ability to talk through the drive in a way that even your dead friend can understand. Okay, I just want to check in with everybody here. Um, I've started sharing my screen. And can somebody give me an indication just to make sure that this is visible to you? Yeah, we can. Great. Oh, can. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I want you all, I want to also call your attention to the chat if you haven't already. Um, the egg, yeah. Um, we can talk about that more if you want but I think it's great. And it really helps you figure out exactly the tradition um, that, that Deleuze and Guattari are working pretty damn hard to, um, to emerge from. Uh, I don't find their project tremendously convincing. I think it's a lot of work. I think it's smart as hell, but I don't find it very convincing. Um, that said, I haven't seen the egg passage. Yo, the egg is there too? As a failed myth, love it. If you've got the passages in mind, Deleuzians out there, please throw it up um, in the chat so we can track it down for those of us who are extremely intrigued by eggs, um, which is perhaps only me. All right, right now, it's time to get down to brass tacks and talk about the drive. So here's what we have. The progression from fetus to newborn to baby to child is full of prohibitions, constraints, pre and post figurations of castration. Most of the objects that are prohibited in the life of kiddos are tied to erogenous zones on the human body, which are in turn tied to something else, this prehistoric mythic libido. So the breast is the prohibited object of weaning that is tied to the mouth as the erogenous zone, which will also be the source of a drive, which is itself a portal into this mythic, unreal place of libido. When objects are prohibited or constrained, whether it's the breast in the weaning process, feces in the potty training process, the cry in the phallic stage, if you will, they become no things. And I want to emphasize this. We talked about it last time. It's very rare that in these sessions, we don't come around to talking about some no things. They are things made from the experience of prohibition. That's why I call them no things. The partial objects of the drive breast, feces, gaze, voice, et cetera, et cetera. They are all no things. Things that have been isolated, quarantined, placed under erasure, prohibited, knowed. The primary no that we often think about as Lacanians is the no of the father, the first stage of the name of the father that works via prohibition. But as we discussed last time, after 
the recording had stopped, unfortunately, there's a sense in which prohibition is really the basic underlying structure of society. Thou shalt not, the Ten Commandments, is as original as the social order gets. So these no things are part of a broader societal process, normativity structured around a series of prohibitions. Well, guess what happens? The breast becomes a no thing in the process of weaning and the mouth at some level becomes a no zone. Feces becomes a no thing in the stage of, pro, in the stage of potty training. As a result, the anus is further moved into this category of no zones. Erogenous zones are usually no zones in some way to varying degrees. So you have no things and no zones produced in this field of a rolling experience of prohibition. Object little a, this objet a, symbolizes the ensuing lack of object and attendant opening on the human body that emerges from this experience of no things and no zones. Object A is just the algebraic term, the little a that we use to mark the place where this shit used to be. The lost object gets the marking of little a to tell us that there is an experience of lack. Objet A symbolizes the experience of lack. In our case, for this example, for this discussion, it's the lack of an object, breast, feces, gaze, voice, cry, and so on and so forth. We can just keep filling in the blanks here of partial, partial objects that are no things, that leave in, their, in the place where they used to be nothing, absence, lack. So when the breast becomes a no thing, the place where it has been placed under erasure and marked out is a place in which nothing appears. No things give way to nothings. And little a is what we use to mark those emerging openings, those emerging lacks or cuts. Objet a, little a, is not surprisingly the same algebraic term that we use to mark the origin of desire. It's cause. The cause of desire is the experience of lack. And we write that with a little a. Little a is the object cause of desire. It's the cause of desire. It's the experience of lack. What happens as far as the drive is concerned is that these lacks are really difficult to deal with. So desire is always in search of stuff. Here is the cause of desire. Here is the object of desire. 
were you to simply desire breasts and not just any breast, but the breast that was weaned from you back in the day, that wouldn't work out too well. Socially speaking, that'd be kind of challenging, which is why that image from last time of your mother walking into the conference room while you're in an awkward meeting, lifting up her shirt, pulling out her breast and saying, now suck child, it's almost lunchtime, is so fucked up. Because, oh my gosh, no, that no thing is not what I'm after. Not after that at all. That's not allowed. That's against the rules. That's the 11th commandment, right? Thou shalt not covet thy mother's breast. That process, Lacan tells us, in seminar seven is sublimation. When desire pursues not the breast that from which you were weaned, but instead the cigarette as an imaginary object. I like this as an imaginary object. And note, I'm also using the algebraic term for specular image here. I'm not fucking around. I'm doing this for a reason. This is a site of imaginary fixation. The objects of desire that drive us, oops, that was a slip, that draw us into the world of stuff, of things, of objects, are in points of imaginary fixation. The cigarette in place of the breast. Really in place of the lack of the breast which brings us to the drive. Drive reverses this process. Drive takes us from the field of objects that we hope, but also hope won't satisfy our desire and fill in the blank left behind through this rolling series of prohibitions we've endured. Drive reverses this process, moving from objects to what this actually is, which is an opening. This is why I say at the start of today's work that the cause of desire is the object of the drive. The cause of desire, the experience of lack, is where the drive heads. It moves away from the sublimated objects that desire vaunts, purchases, consumes, back toward the experience of lack that conditioned the pursuit desirously of those objects. That's also why I say that drive is not a sublimative experience, it's desublimation at work. Drive is desublimation. And this is why it's so weird in seminar seven that we have that talk again of ordinary objects rising to the level elevated to the dignity of das Ding, of the thing. What a horrible way to treat your thing, to allow ordinary objects to rise to that level. Hell no, man. The sublimatory process of finding ordinary objects to substitute for the das ding, the thing that has been axed from your life, is a humiliating endeavor. What the drive shows us is that the stuff, 
all the imaginary fixations that are the object of desire are actually rooted in dosting. It's not that they are elevated to the level of dosting. It's that when you push on those objects, they're rooted in dosting. That's the difference. Lacan needed one more sentence after that one to tell us this part. Ordinary objects that are elevated to the status of dosting, of the thing, 7R7 here, the truth of that when the drive enters is that those ordinary objects are not rising, rising to the level of dosting. They are rooted in the soil of loss, of lack, of dosting of the thing beyond all things. That's an important part here. Were we to keep going, what we would find is that this A that is the cause of desire is connected to a whole host of lost objects. You can just write some of them in. Rest species, the cry, the gaze, and of course, the famous etc. that many folks like to talk about in terms of Zizek's and so on. We don't need to mess with that. You see where it's headed, which is nowhere. What we're looking at here are partial objects that have been prohibited. These are the no things that we were talking about. These are also though connected to openings, erogenous zones, what I called no zones, more or less no zones you might say. So the breast, has the mouth, feces, has the anus, the cry, has the, I'll let you figure that one out, the gaze, has the eye, and so on and so forth. We can just keep going with this, right? Each of these erogenous zones are openings. Little a is an opening. Each of these is an opening. And there's more. These no zones are not just openings. They are archaic representations, leftovers, portals to that earlier loss. They are what Lacan calls libidinal residues. The mouth, the anus, all of the limited openings on the human body, they are libidinal residues. So what you have here is that between libido and the drive, there's the human body. Each of these no zones that allow for the drive by way of the human form to access libido, mythic or otherwise, are rim-like, edge-like structures, most of which can open and close, and therefore allow for interiors and exteriors. The erogenous zones are really an important part of the drive. They're the openings from which the drive emerges, runs its circuit around objet and then returns back to that very same point. 
And here's what else I want to say. All of these erogenous zones are irreducible by sublimation. Sublimation can never fully reduce and close the openings afforded by these no zones. No cigarette can fully plug your mouth. It doesn't work that way. There is an irreducible libidinal economy at the level of erogenous zones, according to Lacan, that cannot ever be fully sublimated. There's always something left. It could just be at the level of intense nerve relations around these rim-like structures. I would suggest though, that these are in fact real points of access to the libido. Whatever we're doing with this mythic thing, lamella libido, each of these orifices is a portal to it. These are all portals from one dimension, if you will, to the next. That's why the metaphor of the cave and the birth canal that we spent so much time working on in position of the unconscious is so important here. The drive is a tunneling activity that emerges, pops up, and then goes right back down into the tunnels. It's constantly passing through openings that are sometimes closed, but oftentimes also open. I don't know how much time we want to spend on this, what else we want to note here, but I'll add this. Everything you see in yellow from little a back to libido, I would say occupies the heart of the libidinal economy. This little a might even be it. It's what opens us into the field of libido. And I would just add something else. The sublimatory process that we're talking about here and associating with desire is hella normative. Now, this is going to come as any, this will not be a surprise to anybody who's thought about sublimation. Of course, sublimatory processes are normative, but they are also propped up by a whole host of fantasies. Fantasy is operative at the point of sublimation, which is why I say that the objects glommed onto by the sublimatory process are points of imaginary fixation. That shit is real. At the level of the drive, what we see is a different mathem altogether, and you know it all too well at this point. Fantasy gives way to drive with the reverse course of desublimation when drive is operational. Also worth noting, as I think somebody just popped up in the chat here, is that the imaginary sublimatory process of desire um, is governed by the pleasure principle. It's worth noting. But what's at stake in the desublimatory process of the drive is well beyond that. And not in a transgressive way, not pleasure, 
but enjoyment. If the pleasure principle governs the desirous, imaginative, sublimatory pursuit of objects instead of openings, enjoyment guides, leads, goads the drive from imaginary points of fixation, cigarettes and otherwise, back to the openings these objects were designed to plug. And from there, at the heart of the libidinal economy known as OBJA, all of this other movement back into the lost object, the no thing, from there to the no zone, the erogenous zones, the sources of the drive, and ultimately accessing, even if only a little bit, this notion of libido. How does all of this fit in Lacan's broader project? I think we could pretty easily render it this way. There's a spectrum of being and having. The further right you go, the closer you cleave to the field of meaning, of having. Cigarettes are things you can have. The further left you go in the direction of libido, the closer you get, not to meaning, but to being. And that's the important thing here to remember. Drive has access to both in a way that desire does not. Drive allows libido and language to flux in and out of each other. Drive has access to the field of meaning and signification. It knows about objects. It knows about imaginary points of fixation, but it also knows about openings. And by God, if it doesn't pursue, if only via ignorance, libido and something beneath, beyond, through those openings. The drive is so important in this sense because it is a portal, not just between libido and desire. The drive is a portal between the field of meaning, the field of the big other, and the field of being, the field of the organism. And you now can see what we're talking about here in the circles that overlap in seminar 11 of meaning and being with non-meaning in between. What else is that between but the opening that ultimately symbolizes the drive? The lozenge left after the subject and demand have faded. What's left is an opening. And it's an opening where you can access meaning, but also being. The drive is important. This is one of the reasons why it's important. Let's pause there for some additional questions. What's on your mind? I guess I could ask a couple of questions. How about um, one? Um, so one is just a clarification of like a, a piece of language that I think is slightly confusing. 
which is that the drive circles around object R, right? Yes. I just, that's just difficult to grasp what that actually means for it to circulate around a lack, let's say. Yeah, isn't that fucking wild? And it's 100% true according to Lacan. So here is your bubble logic of the drive at work. Here you've got your source. Here you've got your aim. Down here, I guess, is where you could put thrust. Mm -hmm. The source is the erogenous zone. This is also the no zone we've been talking about. And then mm -hmm. we come to the object of the drive, which according to Freud can be kind of whatever you want it to be, whatever you glom onto. And then you retroactively through experience take that object as the object of whatever drive it satisfied, according to Freud. What Lacan wants to notice is he wants to take this idea that the object of the drive is so indifferent to the drive because it's not actually an object at all. It is instead an opening. And that's why Lacan chooses for the object of the drive little a. It's an opening of sorts. And in fact, if you want to think about this in terms of another good diagram that Lacan um, messes with in seminar 11, um, I think I did a post on this in our substack on, um, uh, on uh, hoop nets. So the hoop net is like, it's a kind of like vascular looking thing. It goes like this. And the idea is that fish swim through a very small hole and then they enter mm. the big portal in, in, uh, in beneath and they get kind of looped around in there and they can't quite find the little hole to get out. So a fish, a hoop net looks kind of like this. Lacan's point is that this is little a right here. And you might say this is the unconscious down here or whatever, but the point is that it's a small narrow portal through which things can pass. And I think if you want to be kind of clever about what's happening here, take the circle around object A in the drive and remember that it's the opening here in the neck of a hoop net as well. So you have to imagine if you're looking at the drive as you are right now, when you look at A, what you're looking at is a hole. And you look through that hole, through that opening, but into that opening, you find the unconscious. It's an opening into something else. It's not just a vacuum. It's not just a void. It's an opening, a portal into something else. And so what I would say is imagine as you look at the little A in the diagram of the drive, as though you are looking down the neck of a hoop net. You're looking down the neck through this and into this other area mm. where something else resides. And what I would like to suggest is that as you look through that thing, what you see are prohibited objects, more primitive than the socially acceptable ones that your desire pursues, breast, feces, and the like. But what I would suggest is that what you really see are not the objects that were there, you don't see 
the breast that used to be there, what you see is in fact, it's absence, it's void, it's prohibition, it's barred status. That in turn is also a portal. So you pass through, you come out of the erogenous zone, you circle around an opening, maybe catching a glimpse into it in order to hopefully see a breast. But what you see is not a breast, but instead a continuation of the tunnel. Pursuing that continuation is the task of the drive. That's why you never just go around once. You take a few laps. The aim of the drive is circuitous. It doesn't just come out and like take a peek and then dip back. It comes out and it goes around and around and around. And then it goes back only to then come back out again and do the same thing. Mm. Nobody masturbated once and figured they had done it and they were good for me forever. No, the drive is recursive in its aim, but also in its relationship to the object. It passes around the rim, the edge of the void, if you read Badiou, and peering into it sees not the partial object that was prohibited, but a furtherance of the opening. And Lacan's myth is to kind of try and tell us what's at the bottom, what's mm. ultimately at the bottom. What I would suggest is that if you want to layer this thing out, you've got little a, well, I guess what you would say is this. You've got all these partial objects. Once you pull those out, because that's also what goes in here and plugs the hole. Once you pull those out, you see A, which is an opening. Once you look through that, what you see are not partial objects that were removed to create that opening, but instead the fact that they are barred, removed. You see, in other words, another opening another lack, another gap. Looking past that, then what you would see is what Lacan calls libido. And the drive is what moves through all of these openings. That's why it is fundamentally symbolized algebraically by the lozenge. It is a passage through openings. And I don't think that libido is down here in the bottom of the basket waiting. In fact, what I would suggest is if we really wanna be clever about this, what's at the bottom of the basket is the unconscious. Libido is something else, but the unconscious also moves the same way. That's why position of the unconscious is really important here. And that's why I emphasize the cave and the openings and all this stuff, the rim-like in, out, open, closed, temporal pulsations that show us the unconscious. You see the hoop net here, this opening is also one that can be closed. What is the first thing you grab as a fisherman when you reach down to pull up your hoop net? This is where you grab. This is where you constrict. You tighten that thing up and you pull up your net with all the fish inside. So it's an opening that can close. 
among other things that get plugged up in that hole, it's not just the stuff of desire. Transference is also a closing of that hole. Mm. Nevertheless, tells you where it is. So underneath there, there is also the unconscious. What else is this but in fact the cave door? The temptation in psychoanalysis, and here I'm cribbing from Bruce's work, is to think that you want to focus on what the analyzan tells you is all the stuff they want, all the things they're into. Oh, I'm not, you know, that's not, I saw something really scary in a movie last night, and it was like a horrible relationship they were having, but that's not the kind of relationship I want to have. And the trap would be the analyst who then says, well, what kind of relationship do you want to have? Enough about your desire. Let's talk a little bit more about your desire. And Bruce's point is, no, nah, man, that's a trap and an invitation to focus on their imaginary objects, their mm -hmm. fixations. Instead, Bruce says, focus on the disgust and the horror that got them aroused enough to tell you the story in the first place from that part of the movie. It's a different orientation. And his wager, which I think is right conceptually, I'm not that kind of doctor, but conceptually it lines up with what Lacan is doing, is to say that if you focus not on the object of desire that the analyzant says they want, in other words, not the plugging of the hole, but the hole that felt the need to be plugged at the level mm -hmm. of the subject, what you then have instead is an access to what they enjoy. It's no longer about desire, but jouissance. And that is the opportunity structure for the drive, for, for the subject of the drive to displace or sideline for a minute or just put a fucking muzzle on the subject of desire so that mm. something else can be experienced. And I understand this to be a, a, a solid analytic move. I've talked to other Lacanians who say this shit works. I don't know. But I think the idea is that Wherever you see a blockage, kind of makes sense, you'd be looking for the hole that that blockage filled or attempted to fill. And what else is the lamella? Look up lamella. Think about it in terms of mushrooms, fibers, and little flat things that fit in little places. Lamella is a weird, weird thing. I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, it did. Okay. It really does. Um... I guess um, I'm I, I'd still like to know where how you would use the word satisfaction in relation to this structure. Like, yeah. what what does drive satisfaction mean in the context of everything you've just said? That that would be one like follow up. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, Look, I said this last time, and I think I want to just really emphasize this because that question is so spot on. It is what's at stake in all of this. If indeed the drive signals the end of analysis, if it's the beyond of analysis, and satisfaction is what is afforded by the drive, what the hell is that? Let's be clear. The goal of psychoanalysis is to separate from the other without all the inhibitions and influences of normative society and sexuality while still remaining like attuned to death, this biological finality of sex and also the form and function of speech. But separating from the other, the big other, from society, that's an important part. 
of psychoanalysis, and it's an important part of what the drive affords. This tradition, again, is not one that I'm coming up with out of the blue. I think you can trace this from Lacan to Miller to Fink, but desire alone can't get this done. Desire isn't enough because first, desire is always pegged and subservient to the law. What the law prohibits, desire seeks. The type of enjoyment impinging on satisfaction here that is accessible at the level of desire is always and only at the level of transgression of the law. You can only experience enjoyment vis-a-vis -vis the field of desire by breaking the rules. It's always, in other words, maladaptive. Enjoyment, whether you willfully or accidentally discover it in the field of desire, typically by way of symptom, is maladaptive and ultimately unsatisfying. Desire is a dead end because the type of enjoyment that desire conditions is transgressive. And what we know is that transgressive enjoyment is beholden to the law. The law has to be there in order for me to break it and experience enjoyment. That's a maladaptive conception of jouissance. And desire is a dead end as a result. What matters here to your question is that it's unsatisfying. Fucking on an airplane is in the end pretty unsatisfying. It might be intense for a minute because you're breaking the rules, but it's not satisfying. So you can think of examples like, they want me to do it, so I won't. Dad wants me to become an engineer, so I'm not gonna do it. Whether you are revolting against the gender identity that was assigned to you at birth or embracing it wholeheartedly, your identity is still pegged, if you will, on that assignment. I'm not supposed to eat snacks after 10 p.m., so I will. I'm living it. You know what? I saw it on a commercial. It said, I earned this. I've been working hard all week. You know what? I've earned another beer. I deserve this. That's exactly what you deserve. What's silenced and suppressed in all of this is, of course, the drive and the type of satisfaction that the drive affords. Now, we don't quite know what that is yet, but I think we're close to such an extent that here's what I would say. Desire guards against the drive. It's a defense against the drive. Fantasy helps, but desire is the real muscle, although propped up oftentimes by fantasy, that guards against the drive, keeping us on these sublimatory cycles. Part of the task of psychoanalysis is to liberate the drive and shift from other people's demands as we imagine them, other people's desires as society throws them to us, to all those no things that can bring real satisfaction. Note the move here. From imaginary demands to symbolized desires to real satisfaction. So the first thing is that the satisfaction afforded by the drive is going to be a real satisfaction. The subject of the drive is a subject of the real. In order for this to happen though, it's not like you get to re-suck your mom's breasts. That's not what we're talking about here. 
Obja has to be embraced, not as what I imagine you to want me to do. There's fantasy, the mathing for fantasy. There's a little A in an imaginary object position. And it certainly can't be what I think you want. There's the symbolic. There's Obja at the level of desire. But instead, it has to be experienced as my lack. The drive does not get us back to mommy's tit. What it does is it gets us to the lack that is left in its place and embracing it as our lack. I think that's a really important part of this. There's an ownership that happens at the field of lack that desire doesn't have. Desire never wants to own up to its lack. It'll tell you all day long what it wants, but it can't ever tell you why. It pursues recognition from others, but it can never recognize its own cause. It never wants to talk about why I actually want the cigarette. Not what I want. I know that answer. I want the cigarette. But why do I want it? That's the very thing that drive goes for. I want it because I don't have it, because I lack it. That experience of lack is the object of the drive. And so in order for the real satisfaction that Lacan promises at the level of the drive to be experienced, that kind of jouissance that is not transgressive and dissatisfying, but instead adaptive, well-adjusted, satisfying to happen, the first thing to occur is a shift from objects to openings. I'm no longer interested in certain entities as I am in the lack that put me on their trail in the first place. And that lack is mine. This is why fundamentally, psychoanalysis does not have an ontology. There is no ontology of Lacanian psychoanalysis because the ontology of psychoanalysis is a meontology. It doesn't deal with being, ontos in the Greek. It deals with non-being, lack, absence, emptiness. That's the hook. The hook of psychoanalysis at root philosophically is that its ontology is in fact a meontology. It deals not with being, but with non-being. And Obja is so central to the drive because it is a symbol of non-being at the heart of my libidinal economy, not yours, mine. The drive makes it about me. The subject of the drive finally gets to enjoy what they enjoy. You see, the subject of desire, to the extent that they experience enjoyment, all they're really getting off on is what you've told them they can't have. And so their enjoyment is still hooked into your demands and desires. The drive is a way out of that. That's why it's the fourth fundamental concept of psychoanalysis. It doesn't appeal to the big other. It doesn't ask permission. The whole goal here, in other words, for drive satisfaction, when that occurs, it's like desire is still there, but we're not inhibited by it. It doesn't tell us what to do anymore. There's just no opportunity for that. And what desire stops doing is it stops inhibiting our satisfaction, which brings us to the answer to the question, I think. What exactly is it to experience drive satisfaction? What is the satisfaction? Here's how I would put it. And I think I'm quoting Bruce here on this one. It allows you to enjoy your enjoyment. 
you can enjoy jouissance at the level of a drive that you cannot at the level of drive or at the level of desire. Desire will give you enjoyment, but it will never let you enjoy it. You can get drunk as hell on desire. You can drink as many beers as you want. You can get out there. You can break all those rules. The drive, though, is that sip of beer that forces you to pull the cup away from your mouth, make eye contact with the glass, and say to it, God, damn, that's good. It allows you to enjoy your enjoyment, to have a jouissance relative to the thing that you're getting after. And it's a cup, a vascular being just like you. God damn, that's good. I think the satisfaction of the drive is the satisfaction of having a non-transgressive experience of enjoyment. Jouissance without the law as its fundamental peg. This doesn't mean, again, this, is, does not, this does not mean that you live in a world without constraint. The drive is not like um, some fucking hedonistic approach to life. It's not this overwhelming, unbridled desire. That's important too, but it's not what we're getting at here at this point. The superego is still there. The big other is still there. It's just that jouissance in the field of the drive becomes something permitted. And I think that's really key here. In this tradition from Lacan to Miller to Fink, the difference between desire and the drive is their relationship to jouissance. Desire's relationship to enjoyment is transgressive. I can enjoy only by breaking the rules of society. The drive's relationship to enjoyment is permissive. Enjoyment at the level of the drive is not prohibited, it is permitted. You allow yourself in a way that at the level of desire, we never do. So I mentioned earlier, like how you might try and do this in clinical practice. Um, a lot of this is, you know, I take it straight from the folks who I trust around clinical work, um, first and foremost, being Bruce Fink. Um, I think he's pretty good on this point. You focus less on what the analyzan says they want and more on moments of affective intensity, expressions of satisfaction in their speech that they are very quick to censor. You see, there's that moment in the film that gave you a strange feelings, great sadness that grossed you out. And then you say, but that's not the kind of relationship I wanna have. That would never happen in the relationship that I want to achieve. Very quickly, desire rushes in in that moment of enjoyment to talk about what it wants. A really maladaptive relationship that Jeffrey Dahmer had to his third ostensive boyfriend. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine that being my partner because I would never want that. I like to, I don't like to eat frozen human flesh. I like mine fresh. I can't imagine being in that relationship with Dahmer, et cetera, et cetera. The point here, though, is that analytically speaking, what you would do is punctuate those moments of desirous expression and instead emphasize or highlight the previous moment of excitement that desire then censored. Get back to that previous moment, that turn on that moment of disgust um, without seeming disapproving. This is how I read the, the clinical 
um, experience working out here. Strange feelings, great sadness, you name it. You give them a place in the subject. Experiences of jouissance that are not rushed away from, but instead have a special place that's just for them. Here's why I think it's really important. And this is what's going to carry us beyond the tradition that I'm just describing here. One of the things I hear Bruce Fink saying about this moment is that you wouldn't let these intense expressions of affect, these affective intensities, <clears throat> to be explained away. You don't allow desire to rush in and immediately move in the opposite direction. You don't take the bait as an analyst. And Bruce says something really smart here, I think. He says, you don't allow these expressions of affective intensity in analysis to be explained away as anxiety. And I think that's important here. Desire may be a defense against anxiety, as we learn in seminar 10. But both desire and anxiety guard against the kind of satisfaction that the drive affords. They guard against any experience of jouissance that is not at the level of transgression. They inhibit jouissance in the sense of drive satisfaction, in the sense of a permissible experience of jouissance. The analyzant, according to Fink and in this tradition, is rushing away from jouissance as though it's off limits, illegal, barred, when in fact they should be having a special place which is, I would say, therapy, to work on those things, to think about those things, to embrace those things at some level, because that is them. But this important move towards anxiety, I think, is where things get interesting. Part of the challenge of getting to an experience of enjoyment that is non-transgressive is that you don't just have to battle against desire. You also have to battle against anxiety. Anxiety is always there at the hedges of jouissance, guarding against it. This is exactly why we get this definition of the drive in Lacan's essay on the drive. It's a three-page masterpiece. The drive, he says, is a misadventure of desire at the hedges of jouissance watched out for by an evil God. What I'm here suggesting is that the evil God that helps desire guard against permissible experiences of jouissance is anxiety. Anxiety is the evil God that watches out for the drive. And as a result, makes it that much more difficult to experience non-transgressive enjoyment. Anxiety is always there lurking, waiting for desire as it approaches this limit, this hedge of the desiring subject, beyond which, well, we'll see what's beyond which. Let's be very clear about this. Where exactly is the hedge, are the hedges that Lacan is referring to? Where is the hedge of jouissance? I'm going to show you. 
you know the graph of desire. There's desire. There's fantasy. And we've talked about how there are two turns afforded once fantasy starts to bottom out. And my understanding is that most folks go to analysis because their fantasy stops holding water. It stops doing the trick for them. And it's not like they want change. It's instead like they want to cling to their fantasy. I learned that on Instagram. Thank you, Dr. Childs. Instagram's great for this shit. You all, you got to gotta get in on this stuff, man. There's all kinds of brilliant business happening on Instagram, figuring out this stuff, throwing out that quote that gives you something to think about all day. Yeah. Um, at fantasy, when it starts to bottom out, you can turn left and you can go back down and run this regressive circuit of demand that we talked about last time. Or you can take the right turn. Up at the top here is a signifier of the lack in the other. What I would suggest here is that this is the hedge of jubisance. that Lacan is talking about. The hedges of jouissance are right here. And they guard against any turn towards what would be a source of anxiety. And I read this element here, a signifier of the lack in the other, as a signifier of anxiety. If you read Seminar 10, check out our lectures on this. It's when the big other appears to us as a desirous because lacking or barred just like us other that we start to feel anxious because suddenly our lack becomes the object of their desire. Childhood anxiety oftentimes starts, my understanding, in this moment. When the overwhelming desire of a primary caregiver threatens to swallow up the capacity for desire at the level of the infant, at the level of the child. Anxiety is my experience of a lack of lack because you took it from me, because you were too desirous, so to speak. And the reason why this is important for the graph of desire is that what else out here do you see but in fact jouissance. Jouissance is out here on the graph of desire right next to the signifier of the lack and the other that would cause us anxiety. So anxiety belongs out here. And this is the hedge that keeps us from making this move. Now, I think this is very important because it suggests that the pathway to the drive is a tricky one if you're moving in this direction. Look at all the work you gotta do. Fantasy breaks down, you got to fucking deal with desire, and then you got to also deal with anxiety, and then you pass through there only to finally get to drive. That's pretty fierce as a way to proceed. What if, though, there was another way you could go? What if there was another way that you could get to the drive without having to go through anxiety? And this is where I want to end today by suggesting that there very well might be. And the key figure here is Alcibiades. I'm gonna make this look a little bit more like the graph of desire. 
when you look at the upper portion of the graph of desire, there are actually two pathways to the drive. One is the one we just described, where you pass through the hedge of jouissance, defeating desire and anxiety enough to at least put a muzzle on them for you to experience the drive. But there's something more. I want to conclude by suggesting that there are two gateways to the drive. The first is by way of anxiety, which Lacan suggests in his drive essay. Passing through this evil god of anxiety. The second gateway to the drive is not by way of an evil god, but instead by way of a drunk man named Alcibiades. You've got ears to hear. We are back with the theme that is always popping up in these early to mid-1960s works of Lacan, especially when he talks about love, libido, his myth, Alcibiades. Not just Aristophanes who shows up. He's also in the symposium, by the way. It's Alcibiades that is a key figure here. Look for Alcibiades in the subversion of the subject essay, and you'll see some pretty wild stuff. Page 699, English translation. You don't have to check it out. Let me just quote it. Alcibiades is by no means neurotic. In fact, it is because he is the epitome of desirousness, a man who pursues jouissance as far as possible, that he can thus, though with the help of an instrumental drunkenness, produce before everyone's eyes the central articulation of the transference, when in the presence of the object adorned with its sparkle. If you're looking for how Deleuze and Guattari might fit into this, it's between the D of desire and the mathem of the drive, occupied here by the green Alcibiades. This is somebody who epitomizes desirousness, whose desire is unchecked, who pursues jouissance as far as possible, regardless of anxiety. Let's consider this for a second. In fantasy, the neurotic fades before the brilliance of their little a. Subject of the drive here being eclipsed by fantasy of the ego in particular. But fantasy and the ego, they don't change the fact that we're castrated, subjected to the other and the like. So the question then is, how do you get past all this shit? How do you get past the imaginary fixations of the fundamental fantasy? Alcibiades is one of two ways. You can go anxiety or you can go Alcibiades. Alcibiades flaunts his desirousness, his subjective division, his castration. It allows him to pursue jouissance as far as possible. That's what we're learning from the subversion of the subject essay. In other words, Alcibiades' experience of desire is not a defense against jouissance, but instead a gateway to it. His desire is so unhinged that even jouissance is accessible. Think about that. Notice what happens in the symposium. Alcibiades shows up drunk as hell. He's got to have people prop him up just to get him in the door. And he introduces a fundamentally new order. 
You see, prior to his arrival, everybody was talking about and giving talks about the conceptual ideal of love. Oh, what does love mean? All these speeches about love and the abstract. Alcibiades shows up and he's like, hey, y'all, here's a better idea. Let's talk about why we love the people seated to our right. From the conceptual ideal of love to actual people in the room. That's the shift that Alcibiades lets in. It's no longer about the abstract notion of beauty. What an ultimate sublimation. But about a desublimated relationship to the actual body sitting next to you. Read the symposium and then read seminar eight. It's all right there. Even, however, at this level, these eulogies are stand-ins for the practical experience of love itself. Even though, in other words, Alcibiades says, let's talk about why we love the people next to us, you're still talking. You're not at the drive yet. Drive is about the practical, lived, embodied experience of loving another, not talking to them about it. Like Kierkegaard said, to speak of love and to speak of faith is to admit that you are not the lover and certainly not among the faithful. The point here is that Alcibiades goes beyond all social norms and propriety when he speaks of love. But here's the thing, man. Alcibiades is still uneasy about this. He's not entirely cool with just being unhinged. So that's an important element of this, maybe even a sticking point in this placement of Alcibiades as a second pathway to the drive. One thing is for sure, though, and I think this is the crucial point, Alcibiades is not afraid of castration. He is impassioned by ignorance. He doesn't actually know what he wants. But isn't this the basic question? In seminar eight, Lacan says that the lover doesn't know what they lack. And the loved, the beloved, doesn't know what they have. The trick that Socrates via Plato plays here is to help Alcibiades understand his lack. Not what he wants in Socrates. You got to read the symposium, I guess, to get all this. But, but instead, why he wants that. What exactly he's after. And I think this is one of the reasons why Lacan often identifies Socrates as an initial analyst, a proto-analyst, because he does a really good job of turning the ignorance regarding their own lack of the lover back onto itself, helping the lover then become intrigued by what it is they're missing. In the case of Alcibiades, it's this weird love triangle that he wants with Socrates and Agathon. Again, check out Seminar 8, check out Symposium. I'm moving fast and loose here for a reason. It's no coincidence that the theme of the Symposium is love. It's also a theme that keeps coming up in the readings that we've done to understand something about the drive. And I do want to end with this elusive reference to love again. Seminar 11, it doesn't just end with the drive. It ends with this notion of limitless love. If we accept 
that part of the job of analysis in route to the drive is to cause the analyzan to become curious about their own desire, their own little a, their own lack. I can't help but wonder how this hooks into the Lacanian theory of love that would suggest a sharing of lack with another person. Doesn't mean I give you mine. It means I allow you to have yours. If love is giving what I don't have, maybe analysis is a teaching in how to love. By preparing me, familiarizing me with my own lack, I'm better able to accept yours and to thus afford you lack, to give you lack, to give you what I myself don't have to give you the experience of lacking and allow you to have it just like me. How this might result in what Lacan at the end of seminar 11 calls limitless love? I don't know the answer to that question, but I would suggest that it has something to do with the non-transgressive theory of drive satisfaction, of enjoyment, of jouissance that we get at the level of the drive. It doesn't mean we're not constrained. It doesn't mean society has become inoperative. It means that we don't feel inhibited by it. I don't know if that means that in translating it into love, the experience would be limitless, but I think there's something there. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.